these are the things that I wanted to kind of show that, you know, there's so many negative uh, messaging around when you talk about Palestine and Palestinians, people are going to bomb you, people are going to kill you, they're going to stab you. But we are such a lovely bunch of people and we are so ambitious, we are so smart and um, and we want to thrive and want to live and we are, you know, always a big smile and joke about everything. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Art Persists podcast, a series by Bosla Arts offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world, here to share their stories with you, the listener. My name's Georgia and in the season five finale, we're joined by Palestinian chef, restaurateur and food writer, Sami Tamimi. Sami's cooking career began at the age of 17, working in a hotel in Jerusalem. And from there, he moved to Tel Aviv, before finally settling in London to become one of the greatest Palestinian chefs today. In 2002, he partnered with Yotam Ottolenghi and together they have written two critically acclaimed cookbooks, Ottolenghi in Jerusalem, and Sami's third cookbook, co-authored with Tara Wigley, Palestine, is the winner of the Fortner and Mason Cookery Book of the Year 2021, among others, and is personally my favorite cookbook ever. In this episode, Sami and I talk about his career, we talk about Palestinian food and how he uses cooking to share the story of the Palestinian people. We also talk about how he's been coping since the October 7th attacks and the subsequent siege on Gaza, which at the time of recording, the death toll has reached 20,000 people. We talk a bit about his social media presence and how he deals with bullies and negative comments. So Sammy, it's so lovely to have you on the Arpsis podcast. I'm such a huge fan and it's, it's a real pleasure. I wanted to start the conversation by just asking you how you are today and how you've been since everything that's been happening these last few months. I know it's very upsetting and traumatic time. So how are you? How are you coping? Uh, first of all, thank you for having me on your um, broadcast. That's really nice. Yeah, I mean, my days, today is kind of a typical day where, you know, I have a list of things I normally in the morning do a whole kind of list of what I'm going to do uh, today. And uh, it's been a tough a month and a half because I kind of, I'm not managing to do a lot. Mm. The main reason behind it is just what's happening at the moment in uh, Gaza and the West Bank and uh, Israel. And uh, it gets me... Uh, distracted and I can't um, not worry about you know the what's happening and you know my family are all there in Jerusalem and yeah. uh, kind of worries me quite a lot but uh, also something that I'm not, not kind of typical to me um, lately been kind of uh, using my voice on social media yeah. to express how frustrating this situation is uh, regardless to you know the whole people getting murdered and killed and uh, but you know it's a it's a long struggle and it's important that people like me um, face their almost like a demons and just kind of mm. speak out and express not just for myself but also for my family you know, and other people that follow me and follow my work and they see me as a kind of fig- figure that you know want to uh, talk for them Uh, and this is really important Uh, I don't know what I'm getting myself into but 
the right thing to do at the moment is just speak out and be loud and we'll deal with the kind of resources circumstances later on yes and how i have i've been following you for a while but i've i've been looking at your account a lot recently and and i've also been reading quite a lot of the comments mm -hmm. and i was wondering like how has it been for you to to kind of begin posting in a different way on social media you wrote in one post that you had been like bullied online and called all these names. How how do you navigate that kind of new new thing where it's online and people? When I, start, when I started, um, I mean, we're talking about since the October seventh. Mm. I was taking things really uh, hard on myself. Yeah. Also, the criticism and some horrific stuff that's been said to me by strangers that sometimes. You can actually see the picture of the person. Sometimes you can't see mm. uh, like private profiles. And I was kind of getting really distressed and angry about the comments. And gradually I realized that this is not going to stop me. I'm going to keep doing what I, I think it's right for me and for the world to hear from me. Yeah. And that it's not gonna kind of uh, make it uh, a big difference from what hearing from one or two or 10 people saying really negative things about me or, you know, Palestinians or the whole kind of issue with Palestinians and Israelis. Mm. I'm just gonna get the message out and try not to, uh, it's very, very difficult not to look at the comments. Yeah. Because um, some horrific kind of uh, comments. There's a lot of support, which is lovely to hear, uh, from both sides, from Jewish, from Palestinians, from non people that not actually uh, related to the whole uh, conflict, struggle, war, whatever you want to call it. But uh, there's quite a lot of horrible things, and it makes you think. There's a lot of people that say things that makes it even more complicated because they don't really know anything about the yeah. background on what happened and all they see is what Hamas did on October 7th mm. this is kind of triggers this whole kind of war thing but actually it's been going on for the last 80 years or 100 yes. years it's mm. not a new thing luckily nowadays because we have the social media and everybody have a phone and it helps to actually show that all the stuff that's been kind of claimed by one side is actually doubtful. And, you know, you need to kind of kick yourself hard to not be able to actually see that there is a problem there and it's not what's just one-sided, it's not a black and white. And we need to question ourselves as human beings whether we re really want to kind of keep going like this we can't continue like this it's not yeah. the way human beings should be uh, unfortunately throughout our, our history we don't learn from you know past mistakes we keep repeating okay. the mistakes sorry about the swearing now oh swear away <laughs> swear away <laughs> uh, we are very um, short-sighted and also people have short memories of what happened 70 years ago 70 years ago it's not long I mean I lived already 55 years ago them and mm. I still remember things and you know it's not it's not just to hang on what happened in on 48 but actually what happened before and after yeah. 
and throughout. I mean, this is what really kind of gets me. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And also, as an English person, a lot of English people don't even know that the role of that the English played in everything. And it's yeah. um, there's a huge lack of, I think, education about it. I also wanted to ask you in, in these moments when you're feeling like you don't want to do anything, are you cooking? Does cooking help soothe you or is it that you don't want to even be like cooking anything or? I'm cooking at home. I yeah. feel recently I was cooking for the book that I'm working on now. Mm. But, you know, I'm, I'm a, a homely person. I want to cook and I want to share yeah. It's important that we we keep some kind of normalization. Mm. I have two dogs. I need. I have a routine. I need to go out. I need to do stuff. But um, I don't want to sound dramatic. But like you know, having something to eat, and you think all the hungry people having a bath and kind of thinking people have no water at the moment. Yes, it makes you um, appreciate what what kind of life you have, but also think on the other side how privileged we are mm. you know we have a lot of things that we take in uh, for guaranteed but actually when you think about what's happening now in gaza people are starving they don't have medication they 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 don't have water it's absolutely horrible yeah it's, it's horrific it's absolutely horrific Sammy, I want to know a bit about your early life. So you were born and grew up in East Jerusalem. Can you tell us a bit about what your life was like as a young boy and, and what it was like to grow up in East Jerusalem at that time? It was the 70s. I was born one year after the uh, Seven Days War, which is 67. Mm -hmm. I come from a big family, Tamimi family. They are huge, they are everywhere. I grew up in the old city in the Muslim quarter. I had a kind of protected life because, you know, the, whatever happened outside, I mean, there's war and everything uh, until I was a few years old, I kind of started to realize this until like five years ago, there was a war and Jerusalem was separated mm. to different parts and I had a really wonderful childhood being you know born in the, the old city and growing up there and it was a, a totally different uh, place than nowadays mm. and uh, there was this kind of naive feeling that everything is going to be okay but it kind of gotten from bad to the very worst yeah. the moment. and it gradually i mean they started dividing the city not just dividing to part of it but actually building new roads and uh, different roads to Israelis different roads to Palestinians a lot more Jewish settlers kind of took houses and neighborhoods and yeah. in, in Jerusalem and it kind of makes it the balance kind of strange in a way but also going back as a lot of time when you go back home, when you don't live there and you go for the first few times, you, you kind of go in this nostalgic feeling about the place mm. that you grew up in. And it's changed so much that uh, you just kind of start thinking, you know, I don't know this place anymore. Yeah. You know, I've been away, but it changed so much that, you know, you just kind of, is that the right thing to do here or... Mm. I don't know how to describe it like a, a simply by like you know I used to take this road to go to a, a, a church for example mm. 
the road doesn't exist and the church is kind of on the other side and it takes you half an hour to get to one place that yeah just walk it in five minutes <laughs> it's like the nostalgia versus reality when you yeah you have a long uh, home and yeah and i was always uh, this kind of uh, shy artistic boy that wanted to be you know an artist as a kid but uh, uh. i realized that it wasn't nurtured as well. I mean, also the cooking came later on when I was 17, 16, 17, where at home didn't really, they didn't really kind of nurture it in me. They didn't think oh, this boy have something. Kind of yeah. Maybe. Um, but also because I was shy and quiet, didn't help it. <laughs> I was brilliant at school and, and my family were happy with that. But they they didn't kind of make the, the effort to kind of explore what I wanted to do. Yeah. The cooking came, yeah, I mean, it started with a funny story. I went to my father and said, I would like a bike. And he just said, look, it's a summer, uh, school summer holiday. Go out and work and get them <laughs> and buy the bike. So I did. <laughs> I, just yeah. went, I just went and went to this... Um, hotel in West Jerusalem and I asked for a job and uh, then they just said yeah we always need somebody to help with the washing up mm. and, um, I got the job and um, I was so curious because it kind of opened this new world to me I've never been to a, a hotel a kitchen mm. I was only exposed to my my mom's home kitchen and all of a sudden this big massive things and people have their own different roles and at the end they come together to create this big feast and it was really fascinating for a young guy mm. and I wanted to know more so I started neglecting my job as a cleaner and <laughs> running after the chef to try to see what they are doing mm. and I was happy because the head chef he's um, he was a German lovely guy he just saw me kind of doing that and he said, okay, let me give you a small job. So I started with peeling things and mm. taping things. And uh, I think like three, three or four months later, I was running a breakfast section on my own. Wow. <laughs> and uh, by then I had, I already got the bicycle and I, the bike. <laughs> I go get up really, really early and uh, go to the hotel and prepare breakfast for 100 to 250 people on my own, wow. scrambling eggs. Like, <laughs> I, I remember kind of standing on the stove because the pot was so big and it's, I was pretty kind of skinny. And, <laughs> so, and the rest was kind of, uh, I wanted to, it, because of this whole kind of fascination, uh, it evoked also this artistic in me because mm. also kind of art, uh, all the different textures and colors and layers. And you can be quite creative, which the creative part came later on, but uh, yeah. just opened this whole kind of door to me to a world that there's a lot to explore. And I was really kind of fast learner and wanted to know more. And I started to, I left the job in the hotel and I started working in different places around Jerusalem, mm. and later on to Tel Aviv to try to learn as much to kind of nurture this kind of thing that I wasn't even sure that I want to be a chef until yeah. 25 or mm. when I got to be a head chef in a place in Tel Aviv and um, 
And then it kind of clicked to me that I can make a career out of it. Mm. And I went back to my father and said, I want to be a chef. Ah, you're crazy. <laughs> it's all thanks to your father for making you. <laughs> <laughs> you need to be a driver or work when my family had a transport uh, company in Jerusalem. Oh. After the second intifada, everything, you know, they gone really um bad and they have to just basically uh, close the whole company oh really yeah but the the, the tradition still carries on in it it. they transport now goods mm, instead okay. of people. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it like for you to move to tel aviv i don't know when i think about it i mean when i think about the whole kind of moving from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv and to Tel Aviv to London. I did all that. I mean, it's a really brave thing to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, when I moved from Jerusalem to West Jerusalem, you know, I, was, I wasn't I was even 17. Mm. And um, Tel Aviv, I was like 20. I had to work on my language. So I had to learn very quickly Hebrew to be able to get with people. And I did the same when I moved to London. I, you know, yeah. the English was kind of in that priority. I'm a determined person. I know what I want. And especially here in London, when you're a non-English speaker, you kind of have this ability to actually uh, talk to people without them or you understanding everything. Yeah. So I kind of went in and just wanted to get the, the best job I, I could get in Tel Aviv. And I was lucky. I had a little catering company that I was running from home. Mm. And then um, I worked in all the good restaurants in Tel Aviv. There were not many at the time. Yeah. Uh, and the last job I did, it was a place called Lilith, which is uh, owned by a Californian lady. And she... She saw again, you know, this little young guy have something. So she started pushing. <laughs> and two years later, I was the head chef. Wow. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just a quick note for me to say that if you are enjoying the Arpsis podcast, please go and follow us wherever you listen, leave a review and share it online with friends and family. Only with your help can these really important stories be heard. And if you want to learn more about the topic, why not check out some of our other episodes with the Freedom Theatre, Forensic Architecture, Nord Palestina, and Standing Together? Because I was kind of assumed that, but I actually don't really know that if you're if you're moving from East Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, did you face like structural barriers there? Like, are people, especially if you're working alongside Israelis, was there not like tensions, or was it at that time at least a kind of different atmosphere? It was definitely different than now. Yeah. I think people do go and work in Tel Aviv. I actually lived in Tel Aviv as mm. well. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of unheard of mm. uh, back then, uh, which is like, you know, the uh, late 80s, mm. beginning 90s. I also think it's to do with my character as a person. And, you know, I... Uh, very adaptable and I don't want to talk about myself this way but there is something in me that kind of attracts people and it, it helps a lot along the way you just kind of wherever you live like you know in Tel Aviv it's a big place uh, Jerusalem is 
you just kind of live in a bubble in a way yeah you work you have your circle of people that you know from work or friends or whatever uh, but you kind of uh, stay in the bubble you don't leave mm. and the same way happened in in Jerusalem when I moved from east to to west to to work I was really young so I was exploring lots of things like pop music and going to clubs and mm. uh, which is something that I never had at home I yeah. mean up in a very traditional home where Arabic music is played and all of that uh, but they were also a family that traveled a lot and mm-hmm. you know they, they were influenced by a lot of things that comes from different countries and also the mixture of pe- bringing people from different countries and you know mm-hmm. transporting them in Jerusalem and around the country as well what I'm trying to say I, I grew up in a liberal house yeah not extremely religious i mean it got more religious with time mm. but the move to west jerusalem was easier than moving to tel aviv because i have to leave everything behind yeah and my my family were not fan, fan of happy with it. yeah but i was so determined yeah. and i a lot of time i followed my heart and not my brains mm. <laughs> <laughs> And I worked really, really hard all the time. It's just, yeah. it, it wasn't like, you know, I was wasting time or doing really naughty things or... Yeah, no, I understand. Just, uh, <laughs> merely kind of uh, a self-discovery. And, but also, you know, I wanted to... The, the cooking bits kind of like really uh, work on it uh, very hard because I knew that if I don't do it, I'm not going to get any support from, you know, the family or... And, and I can't go back. Yeah. I have to keep forward. Yeah. The same way with moving to London, where it was a horrible period where, you know, there's a second intifada. And I, mm. I felt really uh, weird as a Palestinian living in Tel Aviv because yeah. whatever happens, it's just kind of didn't get the support, the right support. And uh, I couldn't go back home to, to Jerusalem. So I had to find a different way to progress. And London was kind of the, the place. Yeah. And you've been in, you've stayed in London ever since, right? You're still living yeah. in London. I, uh, I've been here since 97. I arrived just before Christmas. And uh, yeah, since then I stayed here. Nowadays I have a house in Italy as well. Oh, wow. So in my time when it's possible between here and Umbria. Amazing. Sounds yeah. lovely. I wanted to talk to you about Palestinian food and what it's you know what it means to you you said that palestine weaves narratives and cooking into the fabric of its identity can you tell us a little bit about first about palestinian food and also what this relationship between the food and the culture and identity is yeah palestinian food is first of all it's very influenced by you know a lot of countries and we had oppression from you know different people around the, the world and also, it's a, a trade spot in the world, so a lot of things came in and out, and we influenced by that. Um, but it used to be also um, one country, which is Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Palestine, then a bit of Iraq, and uh, it's, it used to be called Al-Sham. Mm-hmm. So the food in Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine 
they were not dissimilar. Actually, the ingredients are, are very similar as well. But mm. with every cuisine, when you do it, it's a, when you uh, focus on one one place in this big region, there's always kind of slight changes in in the in the food. And uh, what I found in Palestinian food is a lot more um, gutsy, mm -hmm. more spices. Uh, there's quite a lot of foraging in this food. They took advantage of everything seasonal and they mm. just find a way to eat it. Yeah. And uh, it could be a, something elaborate like somaiya, which is, comes from Gaza, which is meat stewed with chard and lots of sumac because they had so much sumac in, in the region mm. that they have to kind of try to use it somehow. Or to just sauteed khubeze, which is just kind of seasonal uh, spring, summer uh, leaf that they just find it everywhere and they just pick it and do a bit of garlic and a bit of onion and mm. olive oil, good olive oil and good bread. And this is kind of the way they, they ate. They, they didn't waste anything. They just kind of try to eat everything that they have available and make something delicious out of it. Mm. Mm. So back to, to the question. There's quite a lot of similarity, like when you go up north to north of Palestine, it's very close to Lebanon. There's quite a lot of dishes that are similar. Um, sometimes they are called different names, but uh, the region was, although it's very small, but also very diverse and had kind of its own flavoring and characters and cheese came from here and the best meat came from there. And it wasn't so much combined. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, you know, the land is just kind of shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. So everybody's cooking everything from different parts. Mm -hmm. Also to do with, you know, people marrying from different parts of Palestine. Absolutely. And my absolute favorite one of your books is Palestine. I love it so much. And I've got my copy there and you'll be able to see like all the pages are stuck together because I've as I've cooked the recipe, I've got like sauce on the page and stuff. But I really love it. My favorite recipe for sure is just the actually the simple um, pan fried okra. It's like the bamia. I can't remember it. Bamia Bethsinia. Exactly. Can you tell us a little bit about making this book? It's such an amazing book. Why did you decide to make it? Why did you think it was the right time to make it? Tell us a little bit about the process. I mean, this kind of uh, this book was in my mind on my mind for a long time. I mean. Mm -hmm years and when when I was working on Jerusalem mm -hmm. it triggered it and back then no not many publisher would publish um, a Palestinian cookbook especially mm -hmm. with the name kind of Palestine it's very bold and I mean publishers are you know it's it's a nowadays is a lot better it's fashionable but publisher will go and just say Who's gonna buy this book? Nobody knows what Palestinian food is or where mm -hmm. Palestine. After we finished Jerusalem, I wanted to kind of uh, uh, try to see if I can actually do such a book, and they were really happy to do it. I mean, mm -hmm. it changed by then, and uh, there were a few good uh, Palestinian books around out in in the market. The book, the whole book was uh, for it's a, like I said, you know, it's a love letter to. Uh, the country that I grew up, people, the food that I always kind of borrowed from, 
and um, to the family, uh, all that together. I didn't want to make a book about Palestine myself. It was always here yeah. from the beginning that I wanted to talk about the people because yeah. a very important part of this whole kind of uh, narrative and the pitch for, for the book. One thing is really important to say about the book is most books that are in the market or were in the market, they were steep with kind of nostalgia and uh, the past and mm-hmm. they are done by women, mm-hmm. which if you understand the Middle Eastern way of uh, learning to cook, it, it, it is passed from you know, one generation to another by women. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, first of all, it was me as a man. And secondly, I didn't want to do what have been done already before. You know, yeah. I wanted to do something slightly different. Uh, but also the back story for it was always what is happening actually in Palestine yeah. in other days now in modern time. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was very difficult to navigate through uh, because there's so many you know, amazing people in, back home in Palestine, and now I want to kind of concentrate on something that related to the food. So, from farmers to the disputers to this lovely lady in uh, Ida Camp, that kind yeah. of how she started from just kind of wanting to help her disabled son. Yeah. Um, and there was no school in the camp, so she started teaching people how to. Um, cook and she became so popular and she opened a school and people coming from different parts of the world to to cook with her Mm. and these are the things that I wanted to kind of show that you know there's so many negative uh, messaging around when you talk about Palestine and Palestinians people are going to bomb you people are going to kill you they're going to stab you but we are such a lovely bunch of people and We are so ambitious. We are so smart, and um, and we want to thrive and want to live. And we are, you know, always a big smile and joke about everything. And yeah. and go back to people are really ignorant because yeah. uh, they don't know anything. You just say Palestinian, they always kind of think in their head, "Oh shit, war." Yeah, yeah, it's so true, and it's also. I mean, it's kind of based on what you said. It's like just there's a process of like dehumanization at the moment. And it's so important to just remind people that we're all just humans, you know, all want the same thing. I met so many amazing Palestinians that I'm not going to kind of go there, but just we were one of the leaders in the Middle East once Mm. before the occupation, before the the, the British mandate. And... um, we are still, and I, you know, I truly believe in it. And uh, and this is what I wanted to achieve in the book by um, publishing a, a a cookbook that have really amazing recipes. You can mm. talk about a lot of subjects, and people actually um, willing to sit and read. Where you know, if you put a, a novel or a historic book in front of them, they might they might not read it. Yeah. And that was really important. And the message has gone out there and people are really kind of getting attached to the the, the people, to the stories. I mean, I get 
social media now, uh, a lot of time where people say, I wonder what happened to this person or this person that you featured in the book, whether yeah. they're you know, alive or not. Or, but this is kind of, this is a really, really positive thing. Mm. Uh, not just as a cookery book, but also it tells you the narrative, the story. Uh, we try not to kind of get too much political, but yeah. all the stories are real. And uh, this, we didn't shy from, you know, telling people's story without getting, I mean, we got quite into the nit and grit of uh, the kind of really uh, grim backdrop of everything. Yeah. Well, one thing from reading the stories that I hadn't really considered was there's very specific challenges that, you know, chefs or restaurant owners or, or you know, cooks face for being like in Palestine. You mentioned the, the amazing woman from Ida refugee camp who, you know, the access, her ability just to move around was completely restricted. Yeah. But then also there's a story of, I think his name is Dahar um, yeah. in Nazareth. And he meant you mentioned about how he there's certain um ingredients that aren't allowed or that are yeah. forbidden can you tell us a bit about about that and also just some of the general struggles that it that hinders basically being a chef or cooking in in, in that yeah I mean, in the west bank is um first of all i want to say that, that israel controls everything and she wants to control everything yes. want to control what goes in and out this is the, the big bigger frame the, the the smaller frame like you know people used to make things and sell them and buy things from different um, i mean i go to jerusalem and to the day every time i go i go to these older ladies and buy stuff that they make or picked or this is part of the whole kind of um, uh, tradition mm. and um, israel want to control that so uh, they kind of saying that this cheese does not pasteurize or you know it's bad for uh to sell because mm. this pit and this pit so health and safety is kind of the the the, the issue there but actually it's not it, yeah. they just want people not to do these things they're trying to make it as hard as possible for people to actually uh, continue their tradition and their life their what they've done for so many years yeah and um, Daher was explaining about olives that he, uh, his family, been doing for so hundreds of years. Mm. And they pickled them and they, you know, they enjoyed them. And he wanted to sell them in the shop, in the, in his restaurant. And uh, the uh, health and safety or whatever the uh, organization came in and just said, no, you can't. It doesn't have a label on it. You can't sell it to the public. And so what do you want me to do? I mean, I have these olives, you know, my, my grand grandfather been picking the olives and doing it the same way. No, you have to buy a, an Israeli product that have a stamp. And mm. uh, so that kind of part of this whole struggle. Yeah. Uh, I want to, I want to buy meat from a butcher that I trust. And I know that he's going to have a good quality meat, but if it doesn't have the Israeli stamp on it, then it's not valid so that's yeah. kind of part of the whole struggle i see i see no it's it's shocking what do that other i mean like if as as a palestinian if i was still there i would never get to where i got here because yeah. so many things that will stop you from doing it yeah yeah it's like the real 
fires on all fronts. And I, I imagine that as a Palestinian, just to get a stamp, an official stamp that's from Israel to be able to sell your products. And it goes to, you know, not allowing people to, they have a piece of land and not allow people to build on the land. Yeah. The family expanding um, property in Jerusalem, I'm talking because yeah. you know, my family are, uh, properties are really, really getting extremely expensive because they don't allow Palestinian to live to yeah. and so they they're building all these horrible settlements around Jerusalem but they don't allow the the locals which you know they've been living there for hundreds of years yeah. to build a house on their land that they owned mm. it's it's crazy I mean I think a lot of people might remember Sheikh Jarrah and the also the evictions but i think that's it's ongoing i mean it's it's really it's really awful i mean going to this it's it's all kind of it's manipulating the laws national yeah. national laws by finding different ways to claim lands and houses that they don't belong to israel mm. and uh, they they they're, they're smart but you know yeah. they they find different ways to to to, to do it before they used to do they claim the land as a state it, it's a, a state land but after that it was something to do with uh, security and army and it, mm. it's just different ways to kind of uh, annex and just kind of take and, and this whole um, noise about Shahjara happened because this neighborhood was always Arab neighborhood and all of a sudden you plot this Two houses that are settlers that come from I don't know Brooklyn, and they 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 support them and they provide security for them, and it kind of changes changes the whole dynamic of the neighborhood. Hmm. And imagine you, of course, of course, yeah, live in a in a nice quiet neighborhood, and then you have one neighbor that makes a lot of noise and throws. Hmm outside the house and have wild parties and mm. uh, not only that also being aggressive to the to the neighbors yeah and it's all supported by the government all of it i know sammy when you think about the future of of palestine the future of palestinians how how does it make how do you feel uh very sad and also i'm i'm a i'm a optimist person um, I always kind of think about uh, the kind of positive side of things but as it is going this way it it will take you know um, what's happening now in Gaza and the, the West Bank uh, by k killing all these people is going to create you know it's like war doesn't create peace yeah. war creates more hater and more aggression uh, so it's gonna sadly uh, to say it, but it's gonna take few generation to. I mean, but it, this piece of land, Palestine, Israel, whatever you want to call it, it need to have people from outside to yeah. sort it out. Because as it is going this way, it will never be sorted, mm. and always be killings and blood and slaughter. Uh, yeah. Because the, the the it's I won't even call it a war because it's not really a war it's it's unbalanced war course, it's yeah. really strong side and very weak side which you know they don't have guns and and um, 
And unless somebody from the outside, unfortunately, what we see in now with what what's happening is America is supporting it and in, England is supporting it. France is kind of waiting to see who is going to be the, the right side to support. But actually, yeah. these countries are supporting Israel and they're, you know, it's not going to happen. Yeah. I know, I know, it's shocking. You have somebody to just say, guys, stop, let's find a solution for it. Yeah. Uh, whatever they do, it needs to be agreed by both sides and mm. both sides are happy to, to, to do it. But if we continue like this, I mean... I know. Fine. I mean, America and the UK won't even vote in favour of a ceasefire. It's just completely shocking, to be honest. It's a money making. It's a you know, it's a lot of uh, money. Wars create you know profit, and yeah. uh, unfortunately, um, politicians are not the nicest people, <laughs> and you know they sure. um, they don't always take the right decision whether it's actually a right decision for the public or not. Mm. They take it because they have their own agenda. Yeah, yeah. And this is very clear now. So it's kind of Biden. He is not even a conservative. Yeah. Um, he's just totally buying the whole kind of Israeli propaganda story. I know. Yeah. And the same with, with our UK, which is just bad, but it's the same way. Yeah. I mean, you both Biden and uh, what's his name? <laughs> yeah, they both went to see Israel, they visit Israel, but they both of them didn't even bother to say, let's look at what's happening in the West Bank or the Palestinians. Yeah. yeah. And it's really sad. It's really sad. They are like world leaders. They are like. I know. Uh, Sammy, I've taken so much of your time, so I have just two more questions. The first is you mentioned you're working on a new book. If you're able to, can you tell us about the book? I can tell you a lot about the book, actually, because okay. it's still not announced, but it's going to be some kind of Palestinian vegan vegetarian. Ooh, okay, nice. I look forward to it. And my final question, I couldn't not ask you this, is you live in London part-time, like you said. Where does Sami Tamimi go out to eat in London? Which are your, what are your, what are your favorite restaurants? There are, I mean, I tend to uh, eat locally mm -hmm. because I think it's really important to uh, uh, support the locals. Mm -hmm. But I, I like places like, I like Sabor, which is a kind of um, well-known Spanish uh, restaurant. I like St. John's mm -hmm. because they do really wonderful English kind of elevated English. With which you know the the whole focus with the St John's is about the ingredients and just bringing it out there. Mm. I like El Pastor. It's a Mexican restaurant. They have I think two or three uh, places now. Uh, one a really good um, Mexican. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Sammy. Pleasure. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you and. Um... Yeah, I wish you all the best and I really look forward to your, your new book coming out soon. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I hope it's going to be a lovely book. I mean, I worked really hard on it and the recipes are going to be kind of as good. So I'm really excited. Really thank great. you very much for having me. 
We'd like to thank Sami Tamimi for joining us for this week's episode. If you'd like to learn more about his work, find some of his recipes online and check out his book, Palestine, you can find links to his website in the episode description. And thank you for joining us for another season of the Arpsis podcast. We'll be back with season six in 2024, so stay tuned.